There are certain verses of Scripture that we often repeat or uh, we might paraphrase as we repeat them to, uh, to ourselves or to um, our, our friends, our family, uh, maybe for comfort, maybe for encouragement, uh, maybe to challenge them. Um, and I believe that uh, Romans 8.28 is actually one of those, um, one of those verses. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. How many times have you shared that verse or uh, the truth of that verse with someone who, who's in a, in a rough patch, someone who's dealing with a storm, someone who's going through a hard time, someone who's lost a loved one, someone who's just got really bad news from the doctor, right? We, we repeat this verse, or, uh, or at least the truth of this verse, all of the time. Sometimes uh, you probably even repeat it to yourselves, right? During a hard day or a hard season, reminding yourself that, uh, that God's got a plan and that God's got a purpose. Now, it's interesting. I think this is the case with a lot of these verses that we, uh, that we repeat regularly. I, I think we assume that they must be true because they are in the Bible, and it's right to assume that. Um, that, that would be a true assumption. But maybe the better question is, do we really understand it? Do we really understand what Romans 8.28 says? Now, I know this is an interesting way to introduce a passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John, but I think that it actually applies a great deal. When we think about Romans 8.28 and we think about um, God working all things together for good, that's, that's the truth in that statement that our mind often fixates on, right? Because that sounds really good, that God is working all things together for good. But if you notice, in Romans 8.28, there's two qualifying statements. It's an it's a, it's a if situation, right? God works all things together for good if you love Him and if you are called according to His purpose. Now, there's a great deal that can be said about both of those things, love for God and being called according to His purpose. And I'll talk more about this in just a little bit. Uh, but we've run into an issue in modern-day Christianity where we've diluted what the, uh, the idea of what love for God means. Right? There's a lot of people who love the idea of God especially the idea of a God that's working all things together for their good. There's a lot of people who love that idea. But there's not a lot of people, and again, I'm using the word law in relative terms, right? There, there seems to be a diminishing number of people, especially in first world countries, especially in the United States, even in the Bible Belt, that love the God of the Bible. Right? That, that would meet the qualification of what love in Romans 8.28 is talking about. And one of the ways we know whether or not we love God the way Romans 8.28 is talking about is because we look at the second qualification. Called according to His purpose. 
What does it mean to be called according to His purpose? Now, uh, at some point, I'll start sounding like a broken record to you, but I think that it's the consistent message from Jesus to His disciples, and you're going to continue to see this in John's Gospel, that Jesus is calling them to a more intimate relationship, to a more intentional relationship with Him that goes far beyond anything they've experienced in the last three and a half years that they've spent with Him in public ministry. And so to be called according to His purpose is about more than just being invited to come to church regularly. Being called according to His purpose is about more than just reading your Sunday school quarterly each week. It's about more than, uh, than even just uh, saying your prayers each night before you go to bed, than doing your devotion in the morning. All of those things are necessary if you're going to live out God's calling for your life. But being called according to His purpose is understanding just that. That God has a purpose for your life that is a lot bigger than your life. God has a purpose for your life that is a lot bigger, hold on now, than the space that you are occupying in the pew right now. And so understanding these two things are essential for Romans 8.28 to be true of our lives. And so these are important distinctions to understand. But I want to take this one step further. What other biblical evidence do we have to support this claim that God is going to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes? Paul says it to the Romans, and, and that should be enough. But if we're really going to understand it, it helps to have a picture of what that looks like, doesn't it? It helps to have a visual of, of how does this play out in a real-world situation. And so I think it's important for us to ask the question, are there stories that we can turn to in the Scripture that help validate the claim that Paul is making to the Romans in Romans 8.28? And the simple answer is yes. In fact, I believe that there are a number of accounts. I believe that there's a number of stories that validate the claim that Paul makes uh, concerning God and His people in Romans 8. But this morning, we are going to see one of those accounts in John chapter 13. I invite you to turn there with me. John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. We want to see firsthand how God is working all things together for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose, even in seemingly uh, the most hopeless of circumstances. Now, this is the story of Jesus predicting uh, Judas's betrayal. It precedes His his, his prediction of Peter's denial, which we'll look at next week, it follows immediately what we looked at two weeks ago, which is, is, is this upper room scene uh, gathered around the table for the Last Supper. Of course, in John's account, he focuses primarily on foot washing. We celebrated the Lord's Supper together. We, we talked about uh, the spiritual and the theological application of foot washing two weeks ago. And so now, at the culmination of this scene, if you will, the, 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 the supper has been shared, the feet have been washed. Now look what happens in John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. Jesus predicts the betrayal of one of those that is in this intimate gathering with Him. And so it's interesting, we're going to see this continued theme that we've already identified here in the latter chapters of John's Gospel, that Jesus is now very intentionally, very relationally developing His disciples. And so yes, we are going to see this morning that Jesus develops His disciples through betrayal. Read with me beginning in verse 18. 
Jesus says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That, that, that thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew from what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we may have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, this is speaking of Judas, went immediately out, and it was night. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe with all of our heart that this is Your Word, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, and that it is profitable for all that we need. Lord, the words of the prophet Hosea come to mind. He spoke of a famine in the land, but not a famine of food, not a famine of drink, that people would, would starve from physical hunger or that they would die of physical thirst, but a famine, Lord, of Your Word. And so, Lord, may it never be said of us that there is a famine of Your Word amongst us. But, Lord, give us an appetite for this Word. Help us to metabolize this Word in such a way, Lord, that it would transform our hearts. Lord, we pray that as we study this passage set before us this morning, that You would challenge us, that You would transform us, and that You would send us to be ministers of this Word to our neighbors and even to the nations. And we ask all of this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. You know, there's a lot of passages that we've studied uh, so far in the Gospel of John that have really struck this note of hope. Um, of, of, of excitement, of anticipation, but it's a little bit different here in this portion of John chapter 13, isn't it? It seems like it's not so much a message of hope, but that there's echoes of this, this chorus of, of, of sadness. I mean, I mean, here's a man in Judas that's walked with Jesus. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. For almost three and a half years now, he's walked with Jesus. He's talked with Jesus. He's done ministry with Jesus. He's managed the finance for the disciples. He's seen the miracles. He's heard the teachings. He's, he's, he's read the prophecies and he's heard Jesus talk about how he's fulfilled the prophecies. It's this man that has been intimately involved with Jesus in this relational matter for three and a half years. And yet here we come to John chapter 13 and he walks away from the one who has brought hope. 
The final chapter of Judas's life is a hopeless and a tragic end. And there are many negative lessons that we can learn from this account. If you've heard this account preached before, uh, then you've probably heard those lessons. And it's easy enough, and it's true for me to say this morning, in fact, if I was tired enough from vacation, I would just get up here and say to you, don't be a Judas, right? I mean, it's pretty good advice. Don't be Judas. Peace be with you. Go and don't be a Judas. And listen, that's true. That, that's, that's fair application from this passage of Scripture. We don't want to be Judas. It's a bad plan to be Judas, to be intimately involved with Jesus, right? To have this intimate relationship with Him where, where He has taught you, He has invested in you uh, spiritually. He, he has instructed you. You have seen behind the scenes of what the Messiah is doing in His earthly ministry and then at the last moment to walk away denying Him. We don't want to be Judas. But here's the problem when, our message, when messages on this passage just focus on Judas. They miss the point. The point of John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30, listen to me, the point is not Judas. Judas isn't the main character in the scene. Jesus is the main character in the scene. These verses are not primarily about Judas. These verses are primarily about Jesus. Just like Scripture isn't about us, Scripture isn't about Judas. We can learn a lot from Judas, but we won't really understand what, what this passage is meant to teach us until we understand that this passage is actually about Jesus. And so as we, as we closely examine these verses this morning, we're going to discover an, actually a very positive purpose in the midst of this act of treachery committed by Judas. You see, this account of Judas's betrayal actually instills confidence in Jesus Christ. It instills confidence in Jesus Christ. You see, as Jesus is developing His disciples, He's doing this very intentionally. He's making sure that this conversation with Judas plays out publicly before the rest of the disciples. He's using Judas's betrayal to develop his disciples. Specifically, he's using this betrayal to cause the other 11 disciples, whom he knows will remain faithful, to have even greater confidence in him. Now, we know that John wrote this gospel that men may believe. We'll see that very explicitly when we get to the end of John in chapter 20, verse 31. But He wants us to come to this, to this wonderful, life-changing, life-giving realization that Jesus Christ, this lowly carpenter from Nazareth, is the promised Messiah, the, the Son of the one true God. And so since this is John's purpose, the events from the life of Jesus that John has recorded are meant to help us connect those dots. And so what we have here is on the one hand a host of Old Testament teachings devoted to the coming Messiah. Right, we know, we've talked about this, I'll actually reference it again here in just a few moments, that the promise of the Messiah was first made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? And then that promise, that, that, that promise of hope after the fall of man is woven throughout all of the Old Testament like this scarlet thread throughout every page. And then on the other side, in the, in the New Testament, we, we have the life of Jesus. What we're studying here in the Gospel of John. A man who by all accounts actually lived a quiet life. 
really an unremarkable life for almost 30 years in the small village of Galilee. And then all of a sudden, at about 30 years old, he, bu- he bursts on to the public stage. He's healing the sick. He's restoring sight. He's exercising demons. He's controlling nature. And above all, he's claiming to be the Son of God. And so all of this is working together now. And as John is writing his gospel, he wants us to see that these events in the life of Jesus... They weren't done to create some sort of spectacle. They weren't done just to draw this this big crowd. They were done in order to perfectly fulfill the promises that had been made about the Messiah, that had been made about Him in the Old Testament. And so John wants to connect the promise of the Messiah's power with the demonstration of Jesus' power. He wants us to see the works of Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises that were made long before. And so his purpose is, is, it's, it's advanced in this account of Judas's betrayal in John chapter 13. It's, it's placed in this book, it's placed right here in this spot to give us confidence that Jesus, the same confidence that Jesus gave His disciples, right? The, the reason John is telling you and me about Judas's betrayal is because prayerfully, as faithful followers of Jesus, we'll actually have more confidence in Jesus in light of Judas's betrayal. And so that's our goal this morning. We want to leave here as more faithful disciples for sure, but as more confident disciples in the power of Christ. Now verses 18 through 19, we see the first of two reasons that I believe Jesus gives His disciples as why they should have greater confidence in Him as Judas is preparing to betray Him. The first is that He fulfills Messianic prophecy. Jesus fulfills Messianic prophecy. It's really easy when we start to read John chapter 13, but not just John chapter 13. If you already know who Judas is and you already knew the ending of the story, you knew that this was going to happen, it's, it's really a question that you might ask anytime Judas pops up in any one of the accounts that are shared in any of the Gospels. Why did Jesus choose Judas as one of His disciples? Why Judas? Why not, why not go ahead and, and, and find Saul? And change him into Paul, someone who's not going to betray you, someone who's not going to steal money out of the money bag, right? Why why choose Judas? Scripture, I think, is very clear here that Jesus wasn't surprised to discover the treachery that resided in the heart of Judas. As a matter of fact, if we think back to John chapter 6, verses 70 through 71, here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? John clarifies for us that the one he spoke of as a devil is, in fact, Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. You see, Jesus chose Judas because Judas's betrayal was necessary to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew what Judas would do. This goes back to the sovereignty of God that we've been talking about. This is why John has been focusing on the sovereignty of God now for a couple of chapters. He wants us to appreciate it because if we don't appreciate it, we're not going to understand why Jesus is doing what He's doing and how all of this is playing out. He knew the decision that Judas would make. He knew how Judas, this will make you a little bit more comfortable, would exercise his free will. 
But He chose him anyway because He knew that it was necessary in order to fulfill the promises that had been laid out in the Old Testament. Now the quotation here in verse 1 is from Psalm 41.9 where King David excuse me, chronicles his suffering and his mistreatment by those who he thought were his close friends. Now, the reason that this psalm is considered messianic is because much of David's life, you may know this, much of David's life is considered as a type of Christ. It points us towards Jesus in the New Testament. It gives us promises concerning the, the coming Messiah. Not all of David's life, not, not every particular detail of David's life, but, but the overarching theme, uh, the, the broad general sweeping themes are seen as pointing us towards the coming King, a son of David who would rule forever on the throne of David. And so the theme of David's life that, that most frequently is interpreted as pointing towards the Messiah is actually the suffering that David endured. For instance, Jesus Himself quoted David's prayer from Psalm 22 on the cross when the psalmist wrote, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's the same word that uh, Jesus used on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now here's the thing. Let's try to bring, bring some clarity to why all of this is happening. Let's try to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for just a minute. Not Judas' shoes, remember, don't be Judas. But in the rest of the disciples, let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment. It was going to be hard enough for them to understand what was going on in just a few hours. When they saw Jesus drug off, beaten, dragging a cross through a street, mounted on that cross on the top of Golgotha, and taking His last breath, regardless of what they had seen the last three and a half years, that was going to be tough to understand. It was going to be tough for them to figure out. And so on this night, before Jesus would endure all of those things, before He would go to the cross, He wants to assure them, to give them an added assurance, I'm not a false Messiah. I'm not a false prophet, but I am the promised one. And so even this, even this sinister betrayal could give them confidence that He indeed was the promised Son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. And so Jesus experienced an act of treachery at the hand of a trusted friend, just like David did. And for the disciples, Jesus wanted to protect them against, against trying to correct memories in the past. Let's think about this for just a second. It's easy to look back on past events and forget the bad and latch on to the good, isn't it? A good example of this, at least for me, and maybe this is the case for most of you, is, is your younger days, right? Back in your, uh, your glory years, if you will, right? You remember them all much more fond, fondly than what they probably occurred. Now here's, as, a, as someone who played a lot of sports growing up, I can tell you exactly what I'll tell my children when they ask me about my sports career. In basketball, I was the best defensive player in the conference, probably the best shooter to ever put on the jersey at Mitchell High School, one of the best golfers to probably ever play the game, competed for a state championship. Those are the things I'll tell them. And I'm sure at least a couple of those things are almost true. Because we have a tendency to look back on the past more fondly than what maybe it actually occurred, right? We think of the good times maybe a lot better than they actually were, and it's easier to forget the bad times. 
It's just, it's just the way our memories work. And so what Jesus is doing here is He's, he's protecting His disciples from that. He wanted them to understand what was happening with Judas and why it was happening. Because in a few years, he knew that they were going to write gospel accounts of what happened. And he didn't want them to look back on Judas and what happened with Judas and omit it from their memory. He didn't want them to try to explain it away. He wanted them to know why it was happening. He wanted them to understand the purpose behind it. He wanted to eliminate any possible doubt that Judas's betrayal could have caused in their minds. We have a tendency to revise the truth of what really happened as humans, and Jesus wanted to protect these men from that. And so He tells them. He tells them about the betrayal beforehand so that they wouldn't have to look back and wonder why it happened. They wouldn't be forced to explain it away when someone said, well, yeah, there's a count 11 of you now. I thought there was 12. What happened to Judas? He prophesied the betrayal. He told them why it was necessary before it happened so they might believe. And so here's what we really see happening here. Judas's betrayal of Jesus actually serves as something of a steroid for the disciples' faith. Because now, all of a sudden, in a matter of just a few hours, they're going to have yet another fulfilled prophecy that Jesus has just explained to them. In the matter of just a few hours, they're going to see Judas do exactly what Jesus said Judas was going to do. And then they're going to see uh, the religious leaders say, do exactly what Jesus said they were going to do. They're going to see Him crucified exactly as Jesus said He would be crucified. And so Jesus didn't want them to merely believe that He's some sort of insightful prophet, just a good man or an excellent teacher. Jesus said they were to believe that I am He. You see that in verse 19? Now, it's interesting. I think this is important to know. If you don't know this, uh, the majority of the time, if not all the time, depending on the Bible publisher of, of your Bible, if you see a word in italics, there's a really good chance that that word was not actually in the oldest manuscripts, that that's been added in to give some clarity to what was being said. And so that word he, you see, it's probably in italics. If not, it should be um, in, 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 in your Bible that you're looking at in your lap. Because in the Greek, the word he's not there. The Greek is ego ami. Ego ami. You know what, it's, you know what ego ami means literally in English? I am. No he, just I am. Ego ami is the Greek equivalent of the same Hebrew word that God used to identify himself at the burning bush. What, what, what was it that, that God said in Exodus 3, 14 to Moses at the burning bush? Who is he? I am. What does Jesus say in John to his disciples? Ego ami, I am. Jesus says, I am God. I am the promised one. I am the promised Messiah. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has called on them time and time again to believe that He is. I am. Ego ami. Is, it's, it's this Greek equivalent to exactly what God had identified Himself as in the book of Exodus. Now, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus claimed this title. 
It's not the first time he's used, ego of me. He used it earlier in the Gospel of John. And when he claimed to be I am, the people had no problem understanding exactly what he was saying. In fact, many of them attempted to stone him for saying it because they considered it blasphemy. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to the disciples that their faith would be strengthened by believing that he is I am. That He was, is, and forever will be God. This is the way your faith is strengthened. He's saying this is what genuine faith is. And now all of a sudden we have this contrast between genuine faith and whatever faith Judas had. Whatever caused Judas to stay the course for three and a half years. He's saying, listen, Judas may believe some things about me, but Judas doesn't believe the thing about me, that I am. That's it. And he says, if you want to have a real faith, if you want to have a genuine faith, if you want to have an enduring faith, a persevering faith, then you must believe that me, Jesus Christ, is, I am. And so this is the message for us too. Faith must have an object. Faith cannot exist without an object. By definition, faith is not faith if there is no one or nothing in whom we place faith. Faith has to have an object. And here's the problem. These days, the word faith has become just another way to say that a person has a positive outlook on life. A a hopeful attitude, if you will. Right? Oh, well, they, they have a lot of faith, so I think they're going to be okay. We, we talk about it as just a, a, a trait of positivity. You know, that's not the way the Bible describes faith. That's not the way the Scriptures view faith. Biblical faith must have... Listen, I, I can't make it any more simple than this. This is, this, is, this is Gospel 101, okay? Biblical faith must have Jesus Christ as its object. That's it. If if Jesus Christ, the great I am, is not the object of your faith, it's not faith. It's not genuine faith. Biblical faith must embrace certain truths about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, we we were at Epcot um, on Friday, uh, all day Friday, but on Friday night, uh, Epcot for... Uh, for 60 years now, beginning in their Disneyland park, and I think picking up about 35 years ago uh, in, their, in their parks in Orlando, have done a candlelight processional during the Christmas season. And it's exactly what you would, or almost exactly what you would think or expect of a candlelight processional. They read the Christmas story, a choir sings the, our, sort of our traditional Christmas hymns and, and carols that go along with the Christmas story. And they have a famous person that comes and reads the narration of the Christmas story as the choir sings. And so we had an opportunity to go to that on Friday night. And, I mean, it's, it's Disney, right? Let's, let's be honest about what we're dealing with here. So I was interested. Interested to see how this would go. I was pleased that, uh, that really they just read the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. But you know, as the Christmas story kind of tails off in the Gospel of Luke, it, 
then and they started to pick up some of the trying to put some of the pieces together they started talking about even though they'd seen all of these uh, distinctly Christian songs all of these theologically sound songs they had read scripture uh, at the end the narration tells off to talk about how good of a human Jesus was about how good his human heart was about um, how how good of an example it was that he used his time and his energy to use his human hands to help with the healing of the sick right and so it's a little dismissive of the deity of Jesus and my point in telling you all that is this the narration that Disney uses for their candlelight service there's actually not anything wrong about what they say it's actually all very factual but the problem is it depicts at the very end anyway the depiction of Jesus is watered down to something less than the depiction that Scripture actually gives. Now, I didn't come this morning to bash on Disney for the ending of their candlelight service because really, all in all, it was not bad. It was actually very good of what I expected from Disney. But the reason I share this with you is because we're, we're guilty, if not guilty, at risk of doing the same thing that Disney did with Jesus watering down the Jesus of the Bible and believing some things about Jesus but not certain things about Jesus. You say, well, what are the certain things? I would say number one on the list of certain things is exactly what Jesus is laying out for His disciples here that Jesus is I Am. You see, by removing some of the deistic characteristics of Jesus distinguishes Him between being man and being God. But what Jesus is doing here is He's removing all distinction. He doesn't say, I am a good prophet. I'm a faithful preacher. I'm a good leader. I'm a good, I'm a good teacher. I'm a good example. I'm a good disciple maker. He's all of those things. But He says, I am. I am exactly who appeared to Moses. I am. I am the God of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who holds all things together, and the one who will see all things to their ultimate conclusion. And so, here's the thing. When we hear about someone's faith, we need to be able to listen with discernment. I have no doubt that there were Christians in the crowd on Friday night that were way more impressed with the narration than I was. Because it sounded good. There, there was nothing factually wrong about anything that was said. But we need to listen with discernment. Listen, we don't, we don't do anyone any favors by, by sort of quietly and, and tactfully endorsing self-centered, humanistic thinking that's clothed in religious language. And too often times that's what we do. When we talk to someone, we must not merely call them to faith. Listen to me. We can't just invite them to believe in Jesus. But we have... To, we, have to, we have to plead with them. We have to implore them to place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great I Am. Because there's a difference in believing in Jesus, this historical figure, or in Jesus as a historical figure, I should say, and believing in Jesus, the great I Am. 
Jesus the historical figure cannot be disputed on any account. If, if, if someone denies that Jesus physically walked this earth, they're clinically insane or they don't know how to read books. Right? It's a historical fact that Jesus walked this earth. But to believe that He's a good man, to believe that He's a good teacher, to believe that He had a good heart is different than believing that He is I Am. And there is no way to come to God apart from a right belief in Jesus. I have no doubt that Judas believed Jesus was a good person. I don't think Judas would dispute with us if he could speak to us today that Jesus was a good person, that He did good things, that He taught helpful lessons. But Judas obviously did not believe that Jesus was I Am. He, he obviously was more concerned about who Judas was than who Jesus was. And so this generic faith in God, it doesn't do anything other than to be, for me to be as frank and clear as I possibly can. Generic faith doesn't do anything but damn someone's soul to hell. That's it. Generic faith does not get us to heaven. When we consider the, this passage of Scripture, specifically verse 20, when we think about right belief in Jesus through the testimony of those whom He has sent, we start to understand, we see here that Jesus will reconcile wicked, that He'll reconcile vile sinners to holy God. That's why He came. That's what it means to be I am in the flesh. And so faith apart from the Jesus of the Bible, faith apart from the Jesus that is the great I am is a futile faith. It's a hopeless faith. But Jesus Christ in the promised Messiah, the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, it, He brings, faith in Him brings reconciliation with God. When we receive Jesus, He says we receive the one who sent Him. Now I want to sort of wrap this up with the second uh, validation that I think Jesus provides to His disciples in this account. Uh, that He is, in fact, the Messiah. And we see this play out uh, sort of broadly here over verses 20 through 30. We see that Jesus, that Jesus orchestrates the coming events. That Jesus orchestrates the coming events. Now, the backdrop of the events in John 13 is really a battle. But it's not this isolated skirmish that's happening in this backwater village. The backdrop for John chapter 13 is actually a cosmic battle. It's a battle that's been raging for thousands of years. And verse 1 relates to Jesus' march to the cross. Right? He's, he's the Lamb of God making His way into the city to be sacrificed for the sins of man. He knew that His hour, right? that terminology that's used so often in John's Gospel, His hour, speaking of His death, had come. And so verse 1 in chapter 13 that we studied a few weeks back, it, it overviews one side of the conflict. In verse 2, it spells out the enemy's plan. And then this is where we discover Judas, Judas is really only a puppet. He's just a pawn in this cosmic battle. There's someone more powerful that's pulling the strings, right? There's someone behind the scenes that's causing Judas to act. It's not really Judas that's behind the betrayal. Satan is the one that's behind the betrayal. 
You see, this battle has a long history. It goes back to the beginning of civilization, right? We know the story. Hopefully you know the story in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates everything and it's good. He creates man and woman and, and, and the earth and the ground is meant to serve the man. And He gives them the gift of reproduction and of relationship and those marriages and and the woman's childbirth, bearing children, having children, it's all meant to be nothing but joy. But then sin enters the world, right? The serpent deceives Adam and Eve into eating of the tree that they were commanded not to eat. Sin enters the world, and all of a sudden, the ground no longer serves man, but man is to work the ground. All of a sudden, that perfect relationship that was supposed to exist between God and man, between man and woman, between man and child, is now fractured and it's marred by sin. And so, it's, it's, it's cursed. But man and ground wasn't the only ones cursed. We also know that the serpent was cursed as well, right? Earthly serpents were cursed above all animals, but that curse was extended to Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so with the pronouncement of the great serpent's fate, that it, that it, was, that it was sealed, God promised to one day send a deliverer that would come and liberate mankind from the oppressive rule of sin that had entered the world. And so when that deliverance came, the devil, the serpent, would be defeated and his head would be crushed. And so now in John chapter 13, this promise is nearing fulfillment. In the upper room on this night after Jesus had broke bread with his disciples, after he had washed his feet, as he looks Judas in the eye, this prophecy is only hours from fulfillment. Jesus and Satan in this upper room are squaring off in the final battle. But here's here's the glory of John chapter 13. There is a battle waging in the upper room. There is a battle that will rage on for the next 12 to 18 hours. But here's the hope. This battle was decided long before. God knew that this battle would be waged in the upper room. God knew that this battle would be waged in the courts. God knew that this battle would be waged in the streets of Jerusalem. And He knew that this battle would be waged on the Mount of Golgotha. And He knew that this battle would be won that day. It was settled in Genesis 3. As soon as sin entered the world, as soon as the battle began, the battle was already decided. And so Jesus is not surprised by the devil's move. We see that time and time again here in this passage. He's not startled by Judas' treachery. You see, Jesus is sovereign over everything that has happened, that will happen, including His own betrayal. Listen, if you ever doubt the sovereign power of Jesus Christ, memorize verse 3. Just memorize verse 3. You see, what God had given Jesus was everything. Everything. That word everything that's often used in Scripture, particularly in in John's Gospel, is the word panta in Greek. It means all or every, the whole world. Everything is in Jesus' hands. It's just like that old spiritual that we used to sing as children. He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the whole world in His hands. 
You know, that's good news. That's good news for you. That's good news for me. That's good news in every situation that we could possibly face. When someone mistreats you and it seems like justice is far away, Jesus has everything in His hands. When the doctor calls you with bad news, news that you were not expecting, news that you did not want to hear, it's good news that Jesus has everything in His hands. When your boss unexpectedly hands you that notice, it's good news that Jesus has everything in His hands. When you've been faithful, listen, when you've been faithful to teach your children to raise them up in the way that they should go and they still choose to walk away from the truth, you can have hope that Jesus has everything in His hands. When the person that you've pledged your love to decides to betray you, decides to abandon you, decides to to walk away from you, It's good news to know that Jesus has everything in His hands. When it feels like every step that you take in this life is consumed by worry and anxiety, it's good to remember that Jesus has everything in His hands. When the economy's up, when the economy's down. When politicians are good, when politicians are bad, which is most of the time. It's good to know that Jesus has everything in His hands. Listen, there are very few truths that can engage our affections and calm our hearts and influence our decisions like the the reality of Jesus' sovereign power. Even those who betray Him do not catch Him by surprise. But He actually uses their betrayal to develop His disciples, to build His kingdom, to expand His kingdom. You know, you've heard people say you don't show up to a gunfight carrying a knife. It's almost like in this scene, Satan showed up to a nuclear war carrying a butter knife. He had absolutely no chance. There is no way that Jesus' life is being taken from Him. He is not powerless. Satan is the one who is powerless. Satan cannot defeat Him. Jesus is laying down His life willingly. And I love this truth. It, it, It sort of sneaks up on you in this passage of Scripture. I'll close with this. We see sort of this final demonstration of Jesus' authority in this passage in verse 27. Look at verse 27 again. What's happened here is Jesus has dipped the morsel of bread. He gives it to Judas. After He's given it to him, look what happens. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Let's just put ourselves in this scene for just a second. Judas has been identified as the one that's going to betray him. Just before this, we're told that Satan enters in Judas. Judas is now officially a puppet in Satan's scheme. What does Jesus say? He's speaking to Satan now. What you do, do quickly. You say, well, why is that so encouraging to you? Because it's a reminder to me that Satan is still under the command of Jesus. He's still under the command of Jesus. Even when he has deceived Judas, even as he's using one of Jesus' own disciples to betray him, Jesus still gives the command and he says, go and do it quickly. Right after he said what Judas is about to do will actually fulfill the prophecy that's been promised from ages and ages ago. 
You see, on the cross, Jesus crushes the serpent's head. This cosmic battle that has been raging for, for, for centuries now, it culminates. And this is why as we, as we view Jesus' journey to the cross over the remainder of John's Gospel, it's why the truth of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, chapter 15, verse 55, where, O death, is your victory and where, O death, is your sting. It's why that verse is true. Because Jesus is sovereign. Because Jesus has defeated our greatest enemy, which is the sin, the deception of Satan. There is no temptation, there is no sin, there is no fault that will catch Jesus by surprise. Judas's betrayal did not catch Jesus by surprise. Your disobedience... Your refusal to obey, your refusal to follow Him does not catch Jesus by surprise. But this final thing I want to point out, verse 30, He then having received the sop went out, went immediately out and it was not. We've talked about this already in John's Gospel. John is not so much concerned with the time of day, the time of year, or chronological order at all. When he talks about night, he doesn't mean to tell you and I that it was dark outside. What he means to tell you is that it was spiritually dark. It was night. That one of his own had betrayed him. Just a few verses back, what did Jesus tell his disciples? I am the light of the world. And he implores them to follow him. I almost feel as if Jesus was talking explicitly to Judas. Judas, I'm the light of the world. Follow me before it's too late before the darkness overtakes you. And John obviously picked up on it because now Judas has left. And how does John conclude Judas' story? It was not. The darkness had arrived. It's a reminder to us, yes, that God is sovereign. It's, this passage is a reminder to us, yes, that, that Jesus is the great I Am. But when Judas walks out of that candlelit room into the dark street, He's walking away from the light of the world. As the door shuts behind him, his fate is sealed. He's turned his back on the only source of life. And so this is the end of Judas. He chose the darkness over the light. He chose death over life. And so with his example comes the question, will I, will you embrace the light or will we walk out into the night?